I just want to do God's will. The kind of revolution that the world needs is a Christian revolution. If you want a miracle, you've got to expect it to happen. You are the recipients of God's grace and God's blessings, and you rejoice in that reality. Welcome to Life Today Live. Great to have you on this Monday morning. And uh, it's it's noon my time, but my guest time, it's 4 a.m. Uh, and so that's, that's some real dedication to get up and do an interview at 4 a.m., so I'm glad to have him. Uh, we're we're going to be talking about a gentleman who uh, has been very influential in today's church, and many of you have probably heard the name but may not know a lot about him. His name is Charles Spurgeon, uh, and he had a lot of ideas that really spoke to his culture, and the interesting thing is, is, is they speak to ours today. There is a new book out. I say a new book. It's, a, it's an updated version of an old Charles Spurgeon book. Uh, the modern book is called By Grace Alone, and it is written or adapted, maybe I should say, by Craig Ireland, who is coming to us from Brisbane, Australia. And so we're glad to have him. Glad to have you guys. If you're watching live, feel free to be a part of the conversation. And as always, if you're watching the replay, we appreciate your comments. Uh, Craig, thanks for getting up and being with us here on Life Today Live. Yeah, well, thank you for the opportunity today. I'm grateful to be here. So for those who maybe don't know who Charles Spurgeon is or who have heard the name and don't really know a lot about him, give us a brief sort of background as to who the man was and why he was so significant. Yeah, Charles Spurgeon is uh, is is really an enduring figure in evangelicalism today. And although he was born in 1834, uh, he was born into a family of of ministers, a long lineage of ministers. He he converted at about 16 years of age and took on his first pastorate only a few months after that. And in his long tenure of ministry, although we didn't didn't live to see his 60s, in those decades he he soon became probably one of the the most fruitful soul winners in the English language, not just in his time, but probably throughout the history of the Christian church. And there would be so many today, even uh, even our listeners today would, would would know of him because his devotionals, morning and evening, a lot of his literature, a lot of his sermons, and and even just a lot of his quotes are still very much part of the the language of evangelicalism because he was he was quite a wordsmith. He was very uh, very witty, uh, but of course he understood the deep things of God in a really profound way, and had a had an amazing gift just to just to convey those deep things of God in, in a manner which was approachable for really anybody. And, and God used him powerfully. God is still using him powerfully today. And I really consider it a, an honor and a privilege to be part of that story. If I can help some new readers to, to get a handle on Charles Spurgeon, and this might be just their, their introduction to the work of this great man, I'll, I'll certainly feel very blessed. Yeah. And you know, I, I don't, I have a Kindle, and I also have an Audible subscription, and you can find some good Charles Spurgeon things on that, mm. usually for free, uh, and uh, to listen to some of the old terms. Anyway, just a recommendation. Um, yeah. The the idea of, of taking a book that was written, uh, you know, mid to late 1800s and, and updating, I actually think is, is pretty brilliant. There's an 1878 book uh, that I've thought, man, I should update that and re-release it, you know. <laughs> you actually did it. How hard was it to, to sort of keep the authenticity of Spurgeon's Ooh. message, but put it into a language that it's somebody like me wouldn't feel like I'm trying to read Shakespeare. <laughs> yeah, and I think this is, well, let me confess, I think maybe to my uh, 
you know, demonstrating my own hubris, I thought when I started out the project, I'd been a, a student of Charles Spurgeon for a very long time. I've done doctoral studies on Spurgeon. I, I've made it a practice early in my own ministry uh, to read one Charles Spurgeon sermon every single week. Just on my day off, I'd sit down, read a sermon, and uh, I, I've done the math on this. I realized that I, I will finish his published sermons by the time I'm 142 years of age. So <laughs> he, he, he was wow. prolific, if nothing else. And so I initially commenced the project thinking, well, uh, this is going to be an enjoyable project. But I didn't anticipate the challenge, which was, as you had already said, Randy, to, to ensure that people feel like they are still reading Spurgeon. That's that's the biggest challenge. Mm -hmm. And yet just to bring some of those uh, 19th century, those mid 1800 idioms, phrases, you know, just maybe some of the analogies, some of the wording and often the sentence structure. I, I think mm -hmm. the biggest compliment people give me when they read this book is they say it doesn't really read like an update at all. Craig, they tell me that. And I think they think, well, and I'm sorry to tell you this, Craig, but it, it reads a lot like Spurgeon. And then I inform them that there probably wouldn't be more than a, a few sentences that haven't had some touch up. Sometimes, sometimes it's just to reorder the words themselves because right. in the 1800s, of course, their sentence structure was a little bit different mm -hmm. and we would consider it a little archaic today. And I actually that's the biggest compliment I can get. I think people feel like they're almost apologetic to admit that to me. How much, how much revising did you even do, Craig? And I say, well, I, I did a lot, but I'm really glad that's not patently obvious in every sentence and on every page. Now, there are times I had one reviewer tell me, well, there are some anachronisms. I, I update some of the technological ideas in the book where, you know, Spurgeon might talk about an old navigator's compass. I think I've updated that to be a GPS system. Hmm. And uh, I think at one point I use a fiber optic wire. Obviously, those things were not part of the, <laughs> the world in the 1800s. Um, and so uh, some readers have said, look, it's a bit jarring when you get to those points because you really feel like you're immersed in the world of Spurgeon and then you sort of get you sort of get drug out of that almost quite alarmingly into the the modern world I I really do take that as, as a compliment I, I think that's been God's grace to help me to do a good job at this um, but of course the the ultimate objective is to make sure that no one finds Spurgeon unapproachable mm -hmm. because he really is a wonderful summarizer and a condenser of really deep, uh, really robust Christian doctrine. He had a wonderful way of conveying it just to the average folk. And I, I really hope that God's helped me to be able to continue that objective and that desire of Spurgeon so that more people can read yeah. about the wonderful grace of God. Yeah. So technical uh, challenges aside, let, let's talk about the mm. message, uh, because the, your, your book is called By Grace Alone, but the original Spurgeon book that you're working off was called All of Grace, right? What, what was the message that uh, maybe struck people at the time? I can imagine, given some of the, the church history and, and some of the well, uh, legalism in a lot of ways mm. uh, that, that the church was very much steeped in, um, this, this probably was a little bit controversial at times, uh, it, it, at least... Um, groundbreaking in, in a lot of senses, captured people's imagination, made them want to know more about what was God really like. Uh, what what stands out to you about the message uh, that you're carrying on? Yeah, I think you touched on it just now, even in the way you asked the question. You can imagine in London and in you know the wider, uh, the wider English 
culture. To be a Christian was really just saying that you were a, you were a good person, mm. you were a gentleman. Mm. There, there really wasn't much of a disconnect, as we sort of see today, that to be a Christian in our you know perpetually modernizing world is almost to kind of out yourself. It's almost to marginalize yourself in some way. And there are pockets of the world where that's still not true. I, I pastored in the Bible Belt for a few years, so I recognize mm-hmm. there's different. There's a spectrum of this. There's different degrees of it. But in, in certainly in, in 1800s London and, and wider England, to call yourself a Christian, ostensibly just you were saying you're a gentleman. You you're an honest person. That your your word and your handshake were as good as a, a signature on a contract. And that's really how the idea of the gospel and the Christian faith was embraced in Victorian England. And often what happened in that kind of in that milieu was that people began to talk about, well, how do you identify the real Christian from the maybe the cultural Christian, Mm. the nominal Christian? And often the answer to that was the way you identify them is the one that's trying harder, right? The one that's doing more good works, the one that's their faith is manifesting itself in more obedience or more religiosity. And so Charles Spurgeon comes along and just with with the the slam of the hammer on the anvil of God's goodness and God's scripture, he demonstrates that in reality, it's all of grace, which of course is the original title of this book. It's it's entirely of grace. And those that are true and genuine Christians over and against the more cultural, the nominal, are the ones that have tasted of the goodness of God, not on account of anything in themselves, not because they've worked harder, they've put on a braver face, their their language, their their conduct of their life is more Christian-like, but they tasted deeply of the goodness of God in the gospel. It was quite revolutionary. It was a new way to think about the goodness of the gospel. And even in this book, in the original version, and of course in the revision that, that I've worked hard to prepare, Spurgeon is constantly pressing this message that it's entirely, it's exclusively, it's unquestionably, of grace. It's it's by grace alone. In fact, I found it terribly hard to try and come up with a new title that was as apt <laughs> and, and as, as meaningful as, as the original, because that's what God is telling us in the scriptures. That you know, our hard work has got us somewhere. Our hard work has got us to a plate of a place of deep, deeper fallenness. That's where our hard work mm-hmm. has got us. We have all sinned, we've all fallen short of God's glory standard. The remedy that God offers is not we'll do better. Well, try even harder. The remedy that God offers is look to Christ, look to Christ and be saved. And that was Spurgeon's life verse. That was the verse that he actually was converted under. Look unto me, all the ends of the earth, and be ye saved. Mm. And that really is the anthem of his entire ministry. Is It's not about have you worked hard enough, have you achieved and done and merited. It's all about have you tasted deeply? Have you have you leaned in to the refreshing the all-accepting, the perfectly satisfying grace of God. Yeah, uh, and that message is just—it's just as relevant today. Uh, we we still, I think, human condition is to think that we have to earn it. Certainly, every other religion mm-hmm. in the world says if you would just do better, you can, you know, maybe earn your way to mm-hmm. goodness or to heaven or to nirvana or something. Uh, but Christianity says no; it, 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 it's it's all grace. Yet, when we talk about grace today, and I'm Guessing you know this, especially if you spent time here in the U.S., but I think I, mm. I think it's a bit of a global thing in, in the modern evangelical church. A lot of times when we talk about grace, that means we sort of skim over sin. Charles Spurgeon did not mm. do that. Mm. That's right. Yeah, and I think this was 
a key part of his message was to not downplay sin. Like, like Spurgeon's approach wasn't to say grace is so big and lavish and glorious and, and overwhelming that sin is inconsequential. Mm -hmm. Spurgeon wanted to demonstrate the glory of grace by demonstrating the utter criminal nature, the cosmic treason, as R.C. Sproul used to like to say. Mm -hmm, yeah. The nature of our fallenness is just so incredible that now we actually have, we have the categories now to realize, well, how good is God's grace? Or I should put it this way, how, how gracious is God's grace that he would actually look down and save a wretch like me mm -hmm. to to steal the words of the great hymn writer uh amazing grace that's that's really the way john newton the puritans framed it spurgeon was very much in that tradition not to downplay sin and just talk about and we see this today a, a little bit this overemphasis on god's love and god's universal acceptance and god's kind of global paternity mm -hmm. and and it's really just that's that's who god is this i've heard one preacher put it this way he said Sometimes in evangelical churches that have gone down that path so strongly and mm -hmm. committedly, the God they proclaim ends up being like a sky uh, kind of Santa Claus on steroids, I think was yeah. the phrase. Yeah. Uh, and I think sometimes that's the image. Whereas preachers like Spurgeon would say, no, your sin is actually a horrible thing. It, 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 really, is, it really is depravity. And the scriptures are very clear about that. But this should help you to gain even greater views and ideas of the graciousness of God. Yeah. He's come to you and extended this grace in Jesus, not because you've deserved it and not because, well, this is just what God does to everyone. No, but in fact, this is what God does for those that can look to Jesus, abandon any vain hope of self-salvation or self-remedy, but to cling to Christ. And that's, in fact, that's a subheading in one of the chapters in the book, Can You Cling? Spurgeon tells this great story of these little mollusks that cling to the rock of the local beachside where he would go for walks. And he talked about how he'd take his walking stick and he'd whack one off the rock and it would fly into the water. And then he said, as soon as you do that, you try and hit the next the next kind of mollusk stuck to the rock, the next, you hit it and it won't, it won't come free. He talks about these little mollusks, these tiny little muscle things. I'm not a marine biologist. My, my wife is. I should have consulted her before <laughs> I tried to explain this analogy. But the, Spurgeon says there's something curious that happens. There's something in the, in the first strike of the first mollusk because he falls into the water and he'll make, him, make his way back up later on. You can't knock another one off because of, of the lack of intelligence of these little shellfish. They're maybe not even shellfish. They know enough to cling. And Spurgeon mm. asks the question of his reader, do you know enough to cling to Christ? Mm. Do you know enough? Because it doesn't take a lot to know. You need to know your fallenness and the satisfactory redemption of Christ and hold fast. That's what God is calling upon sinners to do, that they may receive the overwhelming grace of God. So, so you're perfectly right. It's not a downplay of sin. It really is giving sin its proper place and then saying, understanding that for what it is, yeah. now realize how immeasurable grace is. Exactly. I, I honestly don't think you can fully appreciate uh, the depth of God's grace without fully understanding the depth of, of human depravity. Mm. Uh, and and that, that ties in with something we, I talked about recently. On, uh, it's coming up on the broadcast with, with John Bevere about this, this idea of the fear of the Lord, which is yeah. in Scripture is a terror. And I think it, it's not... But yet we don't fear, we're not scared of God, he, he says. And there's mm. this curious dynamic. Mm. But I, when we talk about being in God's presence and, and the power of it, um, I, the, part of me is like, I don't, I don't know that I want to be there because I know that I can't stand there, you know? But yet that's yeah. the beauty of the grace 
that, mm. that you're talking about and that, that God extends to us. This idea that is prevalent in Spurgeon uh, and obviously in, in your adaptation of his book of, of um, by grace through faith. And mm. the phrasing of that is, is important. Uh, and, and we, I, I think as Christians, even today, we need to understand how that works. And you've got a whole chapter on this because Spurgeon had a whole chapter on this. Um, yeah. Explain the significance of that particular phrasing and, and, and what, it, what it means. Yeah, this is, this is the, the curious, the humbling, the, the, this, the, the wonderful mechanism that God has orchestrated that, that sinners like me and, and like us all can actually obtain this immeasurable grace of God. It's, it's, it's by grace through faith. So what is, what has God called upon every sinner to do? It's not to self renovate, right? It's not to go through their life and, and take an inventory and sever out every single indiscretion that they can find. Because even in that act alone, even our repentance, if not fueled by grace, our repentance will, we find we need to repent of it. We find that there's selfishness kind of embedded in it. We find that there's mixed motivations and, and there's different there's different ideas of self-preservation and self-glorying. You know, the psychologists tell us that altruism in its you know pure form doesn't really exist. This is the human experience, it's universal. And so as God has God has developed this mechanism, which of course is the mystery of God known before and developed throughout the revelation of scripture and revealed ultimately in Christ, is that God's graciousness toward a sinner is that Christ would achieve, Christ would do. Christ would be the, 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 the winner of salvation, the champion of redemption. And then anyone who's simply found in Christ will buy that merit of being in Christ. This is the language of Ephesians. And I'm going to try here, Randy, not to sort of become the preacher on the program today, because really this is about Spurgeon. Um, but, you know, I, I shifted to that gear a little too easily. The, the language in Ephesians is just in Christ, it's in him, in him, all the fullness, in him, all the benefits, in him, all the mystery of God, in him. We become inheritors and we become the, the ones who gain the goodness of God. But the way to find our inness in Christ is by faith. It, it's not by working a little harder and doing a little more and giving a little more in the offering plate and being in church a little more and volunteering a, a little more. Mm -hmm. That's what our flesh tells us is the remedy. We're going to have to suppress and resist and fight that temptation to feel like if we just do a little more, then God's going to see us as a great candidate for his salvation. But that's not a salvation of grace. That's mm -hmm. a salvation of damnation because we cannot be good enough. But the good news is that Jesus is good enough and his sin-free life, his death upon the cross, his triumphant resurrection demonstrate that the Father has has presented Jesus to an entirely sin-sunken world and said, in him, you access the inness in Christ by faith, which is to cling, which is to hold fast, which is to receive the good news. And that is that salvation. So, yeah, so this idea of by grace through faith God has established to the utter humiliation of our flesh mm -hmm. and our, 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 our ideas of mm -hmm. how good we can be and how much we can save ourselves. And God says, cling to Christ, yeah. be in Christ. And that is through faith alone. Yeah. Uh, abide in me, Jesus said. Uh, and Andrew, Andrew Murray yeah. has a great book, collection of sermons on that. Oh, yeah. And and really, that, that takes all the credit away from us. Uh, it takes a lot of the pressure off of us. Uh, and it, it just changes the dynamic of it entirely. Uh, I'll show people the book again. This is By Grace Alone, uh, an adaptation 
of a Charles Spurgeon work by Craig Ireland. If you just go look for Craig Ireland by Grace Alone online, you can find the book, pick it up. It'll be a great read and uh, push you even deeper uh, into an understanding and an appreciation, I think, of, of just everything that Christ has done for us. I mean, there's just, without that, I, I, I nothing matters. I mean, life doesn't even matter if you don't understand that. I, I just, it's such a beautiful and, and deep message. Uh, now, you, you want to talk about Spurgeon, but I, I want to talk about Craig Ireland for a moment, if you'll allow me. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> is, is there anything that... Um, I don't know. Do you have a, a favorite part or maybe something that struck you the most out of this? Uh, is there anything that just stands out, whether it's for just intellectual reasons or personal application reasons uh, in this particular book? Yeah, I have to say that uh, having most recently pastored right up in, uh, in Western New York area, there's this wonderful story <clears throat> that Charles Spurgeon shares in the book. And I you know, I, I've taken that story and adapted it in uh, dozens of sermons and at different times. And I think it's stories like this that really make the resource just such a wonderful uh, benefit to anyone who wants to learn more about God's grace and appreciate that more. Is this story about two men back in the 1800s who were um, just they're in a you know kind of a, uh, a rough shed type boat on on the river that ends up coming over the, the Niagara Falls, mm-hmm. and uh, their boat gets broken up, hits a rock. And they're suddenly cast into the water and the water's getting rougher and rougher and whiter and whiter as they near the falls. And they're screaming, you know, out for any kind of help. And fortunate for them, there's a group of people that were picnicking right on the shoreline. And uh, and one of them has this long rope. It's actually a true story. Throws out the rope to these two men and they both hold it. They both cling it for dear life. And the people on the shore are slowly, but but certainly pulling them in to the shoreline, of course, to, to safety. And as they're doing that, uh, that comes along the water next and bobbing along in the water, there's this big log that maybe a tree fallen further up river somewhere, this big log starts kind of bouncing in the water alongside them. And one of these men tragically, horrifically lets go of the cord, the rope and grabs the log, hugs it for dear life. And you can imagine the insanity of that moment, the panic of that moment for this particular man as he looks at the little cord, right, he thinks it's small, it's inconsequential, it, it doesn't look like it weighs a whole lot, it doesn't look like it's strong, right? And here's this big tree trunk that's bobbing down. The, it's big, it's heavy, it's weighty, it's robust. And he reasons in himself that, that that's a better savior. Now, mm-hmm. as I said, tragically, he goes over the water and, and perishes. And the other man is, is dragged to the shoreline and saved. And Spurgeon, in his wonderful ability, He's, he's able to bring you to that point as the reader to say, as, you, as, you, as you're picturing the scene, one man saved and there's a sense of celebration and one man lost and it's horrific. Spurgeon says, it's not how big that you perceive your religious activities or your religious devotion to be. The only question about your faith is, is it connected to safety? Mm. That's it. Wow. Is it con- and he says the safety is Christ. And, and I think we see this today. We, we, we see the elevation of faith or sincerity as its own savior. Like if you're just sincere, it doesn't really matter who you worship or how you worship or, or what your religiosity is. If, if, if you're sincere and it means something to you, then it's going to end up in your salvation. And I think, you know, one preacher said once, you can be as sincere as you like, but if, you know, if you're sincerely drinking poison, think it's going to help you, you'll find that objective reality comes home pretty quick. And, and you realize that, Faith saves only because, not because faith is robust. Virgin spends time in the book saying faith often feels quite 
quite liked. Faith often, we look at ourselves, we know, I don't, I don't know how much faith I've got. I don't feel strong or yeah. formidable. Spurgeon says, that doesn't matter. Is your faith connected to Christ? Then you're being dragged into the shoreline, into safety. No matter how small a cord faith runs along, Spurgeon says, its power to save is not in the faith. The power of faith to save is in its object. Are you looking and trusting in Christ? It's that reminder by Spurgeon that just brings me back to this book and encourages me all the time. You know, I I, I love that. And, and you know, I, I grew up kind of all over the map denominationally, but there's a particular group uh, of people that I love and respect so many of them, but they oftentimes it seems like they have faith in their faith. Mm. Uh, and mm. how big is it determines how, uh, you know, effective <laughs> you are, successful you are, whatever. And I, I'm like, I had one of my friends, good friend was talking to me about this one time. And I said, dude, it, Jesus said it just takes a faith of a mustard seed. Yeah, That is not yes. very big. Mm. Uh, and, and, but I think I missed the rest of your point, which is that it's, it's, it's not how big the faith is. It's who it's connected mm. to. That's and, right. And that is such a beautiful illustration. I, I, we, we've got to hear that because again, what happens is we, we turn it around and we, we place it on us and our work and our ability. Mm-hmm. And it's like, it's just, you're, you're never going to be able to do enough. Um, <laughs> yeah. and that is just the whole definition of grace. Anyway, this ties into the last thing I want to ask you about, which is some people I've heard this too. Uh, they, they think they have done too many bad things in their life. They have mm. done too many, made too many mistakes, um, whether, in, you know, intentionally or unintentionally, whatever. They think, I, you know, I, I hear about God's grace, but you don't understand what I've done. And some maybe have been in a church environment where they think mm. that they've committed the mysterious, unpardonable sin that Scripture mm. alludes to but doesn't define just real plainly for us. What do you say to someone who thinks they're beyond God's grace? Yeah, and I think that it's it's for these people particularly that the message of grace really really should hit home the hardest. You know, Spurgeon's got this one line in this book where he quotes his hymn writer. He doesn't give any attribution, so you don't quite know who exactly he's referring to. But this line says, the sinner is a sacred thing. The Holy Spirit makes him so. And Spurgeon's point in that is initially, yes, to be provocative. It's to be confrontational in this kind of rethinking about what we make of a sinner because in human categories sinfulness we perceive as being as being weakness and wretchedness and fallenness and that's all true but then somehow we what we do in our thinking of that is we then say and then it means disqualification like that's a connection that we make that's really not a scriptural connection it's not a gospel Hmm. connection what the gospel tells us and jesus is jesus is constant in stating this is that by our fallenness, by our wretchedness, by our sinfulness, and, and Jesus even uses categories of illness, right? The, the physician comes not to the well, but to those that need him, those that are sick. That the all-qualifying nature of sin is precisely why God has issued this wonderful good news that is the gospel. So I've been in pastoral ministry myself for over 20 years, and I've counseled more people than I can remember. That have said, Pastor, I, I I think I've committed the unpardonable sin. I think I've blasphemed the Holy Spirit. I'm I'm desperately vexed in my conscience. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I you know the story goes on and on. The the story of woe, and I say to them, if you can look to Jesus and say He is an all satisfying Savior, able to save to the uttermost, even the worst of sinners, 
if you can look to him and you know he's capable enough, he's able, he's desirous enough, then you, friend, have saving faith because that's all saving faith is. It's an ability to not look at the depth of our wretchedness. We already know that is beyond imagining, beyond calculating, but we can look at the infinite nature of God's mercy and grace as it's specifically demonstrated in the life, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. Mm -hmm. If we can look to that, cast our eyes to that, then we can know that no matter how no matter how gaping a chasm our sin is, the infinite nature of God's grace can overwhelm and overcome and can certainly save anybody yeah. and does. It saves the worst of sinners all the time. So that's the message of the gospel. Yeah, it really is. It really is. And just uh, a viewer brings up a, a good point, and so we'll kind of finish this arc because we start by talking about the uh, inability of our works to, to save ourselves or to earn God's mm -hmm. grace. Uh, the depravity of our sin is, necessitates God's grace. But once you understand that, that saving faith and you experience the depth of God's grace, that's actually not the end of the story because out of that, we do see the good works for which we were created. And I think sometimes the, where we get it backwards is where we get it backwards. <laughs> you know, We think the, grace, the, the works will earn the grace when we realize no, that the grace enables the yeah. works. Um, how important are good works, by which I mean not just what man calls a good thing, but God works, works out of God's mm. grace working in your life. How important are those? Yeah, and this this closes the gap a little bit, even on Paul's thought in Ephesians 2, which we've been kind of making reference and mm. dancing around to, where Paul says it is by grace through faith, not of yourselves, and that eliminates boasting. And then he goes on, of course, Paul says, and this we're created in Christ Jesus for good works, where, where God's we are, we are God's workmanship unto good works. And so I think, again, as we think about the gospel and the good news, and, and I love that word you used just now, Randy, the, the grace enabling. That's that's what it is. And I think too many Christians, you know, they realize that the good works, that's the spirit in us enables us to do. They should always perceive that as the fruit and never the root of their salvation because yeah. it's the work of Christ that brings us salvation. And then what, 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 what our demonstration of gratitude and appreciation and a life lived in honor of the good news of the gospel is a life where we do and we are seeking to grow from grace to grace and from through levels of progressive sanctification and trying to be more Christ-like. And we're going to fail and we're going to mess up, but we know that God's grace is always that limitless fountain of his goodness. And Christ's act of salvation is never going to be exhausted and so in that and out of that we strive to be more like Christ. Yeah. If you're gonna if you're gonna fall, and you will, fall <laughs> in the right direction towards Christ and let him pick mm -hmm. you back up and then keep going. It's when we turn our back that things go bad. Uh, Craig, yeah. great conversation. I love these types of conversations, the the depth, the understanding, the unpacking, the applying of scripture. Uh, and I appreciate you uh, helping in that. Charles Spurgeon helping in that and, and all going back to uh, the, that rock solid foundation of scripture and Christ, the teachings of Christ. So thank you. Is there anything you want to add before I let you go? I just want to say thank you so much for the chance today to share the good news of Jesus, to talk about my favorite author, Charles Spurgeon, and, uh, and hopefully in some small way I've helped someone discover Spurgeon for themselves. That would be a real gift. Yeah, and you want to do it, go check out By Grace Alone, uh, and you can read some Spurgeon in the language that will be much easier uh, mm. than the original uh, 1800s uh, language. Uh, and yeah, you can graduate and go on and start 
listening and uh, reading some Spurgeon on your own. You will be blessed. Appreciate you guys being here. If you haven't followed, liked, subscribed, do that. And uh, if you know somebody else that maybe wants a little bit of explanation about grace, or maybe someone's a Charles Spurgeon lover, hit share, let them know about it, and come back. I've got more for you all this week here on Life Today Live. We'll see you again next time. man comes to the Father, but by me. The only way to God is Jesus Christ.